the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Planted with Sarah Pion. I'm Sarah Pion, your host, and today we have Cure Reed, the Director of Partnerships from the Panther Group and also the founder of Women Employed in Cannabis. Kira, welcome to the show today. I'm so happy to have you here. Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be here. Now, I've been following your work for a long time, and I am, um, well, before we get into that, because you have a lot, we have a lot of exciting things to talk about, um, but I want to know, what was your first experience in cannabis, or with cannabis, I should say? Well, I mean, it's a little hard to say, because I grew up, you know, in Northern California in the early 70s, where I was surrounded by it. Everybody I knew grew it. I mean, you know, it wasn't Humboldt. It wasn't like my family were commercial growers in any way, but it was not a big deal. It was just, it was everywhere. My first personal experience where I, as an independent individual smoked, I was 14. I was with a friend of mine at his house and, uh, yeah, I, smoked some and, and went and hid in the closet for the rest of the day. <laughs> yeah. It's, Did not expect to end up on this trajectory from that point. But uh, yeah, that was actually my very first real, you know, as, you know, an individual deciding to consume. Yeah. Isn't it funny? It's the things we could tell our younger selves now. It's like, hell, you know, you're, you're going to revisit this eventually in a whole different way. <laughs> but I mean, it, it, when we look at like cannabis culture, Northern California has always been, well, not always, but for the most compared to the rest of the country, just so much more chill about that. Because like growing up in the Upper Peninsula, Michigan, like it was a big deal. If you had a, if you were caught with a pipe with a little bit of resin, you would get arrested. And when I moved out here in the '90s, walking down Haight Street and like smelling people smoking it openly in the air, where it was Back then, we were still like, stuff a towel under the door. You know, it yeah. it blew my mind. But I think it also created a much more nuanced relationship with cannabis in general. Like, there wasn't so much shame. People had more conversations. I think that it actually led to people having more pleasant experiences due to the fact that you didn't have as much stigma here as you did other places, even though it was still federally illegal there were just there was just a lot more to it than there was more critical thought around it than there was in other parts of the country, maybe. Yeah, I, I agree. And I also worked in the music industry for quite a while. And, you know, that whole culture, you either get alcohol, cocaine, or cannabis. You know, you don't really find somebody that does all three on the regular. And so a lot of people that I ended up being surrounded by were musicians who smoked cannabis for creativity. So at no point in my history did I ever vilify it or think ill of it because of the people I was around or the society that I was living in viewing it that way. So I've always had a pretty open accepting relationship with cannabis because it's been embraced by everyone I've been around for the majority of my life with the exception of the times that I lived in New York and and in the South where it was a very different vibe, you know, Um, it was definitely something more underground. The quality of the cannabis was terrible. Um, But at the same time, because of that, you, you were, um, or I was able to meet people in these highly conservative areas where we had this kind of underground thing that we like to do together. 
And, you know, it opened us up and it enabled us to become more intimate with each other than we would have been with alcohol or cocaine or anything else that is more prevalent in areas where you don't have easy access to cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. That's so true. We, um, we actually ran into each other several months ago in New York. At yes, the, we M- did. Yeah, at, at your party at the MJM Pack, yeah. which was lovely, by the way. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, my husband is a musician, and for many years he played with members of the Grateful Dead in a little band called Further. And right. when he found out that there was legalization happening in New York, he was exceptionally happy because one of the things he said really bummed him out was when he'd hear about kids in line getting pulled out of line and arrested for smoking joints while waiting to come to see the shows. Mm. Mm. So it's good that these things are changing and especially, you know, in our major metropolitan areas. Um, But, you know, it's... It kind of, and it's also like you know when you look at like women involved in cannabis, working in cannabis, in relationships. I know for me, and some of the people that I dated before I got married, even though it was very antiquated thought, I I was thinking there there was still a lot of stigma about dating somebody who worked in the space. And my husband's like, yeah, well, I'm a musician. I don't care. I think it's cool what you do. <laughs> but how did how did you get into working in the cannabis space? Well, um, in the uh, 2010s, I was uh, working with the Roxy Theater and the Sunset Strip. I had a uh, social media agency and I was leading the team that basically was using the new tools of social media to revitalize the Sunset Strip. And I was working with the owner of the Roxy, the uh, marketing director for the Viper Room and the marketing director for the Comedy Store. We were a team called the Social Strip. Mm. And we used this technology to host, do really cool things like host the first tweet crawl, which was all the way down the Sunset Strip. And we took everybody from venue to venue, the Andaz Hotel and Book Soup, in addition to the clubs. And we had bands. And it was really, it was a lot of fun. So we really liked working together. And cannabis was at the center of all of our meetings. You know, we were, we all consumed cannabis. And again, it was one of those equalizers. So, mm-hmm. um, and we all preferred to do that over drinking even. So we we decided, you know, look, we're approaching legalization. I think it was about 2011. um, And we want to start working with cannabis companies, right? We're a strong social media team. They're going to need this. So we started pitching uh, several different companies with some really great ideas. And then right behind us, the government came in and started shutting everybody down. Because it was in that time of confusion during the Obama administration where, you know, is it, isn't it, you know, what is our view on this? So I stepped back from it for a while. We realized like this is just going to consume a lot of time and we're not really probably going to cross the finish line with any of these companies because they, there's just not possible. So a few years later, when we reapproached that in California, when Prop 64 was on the ballot and we knew it was going to pass, about that time, Um, Vice Magazine and a couple of others were doing really great stories on Women Grow. And they were talking about the opportunities for women in the industry to build this industry right alongside men, to be able to build a seat at the table for ourselves, you know, equity, all of the conversation around the opportunity for women and minorities in this space was very exciting in the early days, especially because our numbers were so high. You know, we had over 30% of the C-suite was women. 
So I thought, you know, at, at the end of my time working in the music industry, I we had kind of transitioned over into tech and the sexism there was just oh, it was so awful. It was so awful. And it, I realized, you know, I grew up in an era where sexism and racism just didn't exist anymore. We've solved those problems and we can move on. <laughs> which was really a convenient way to kind of gaslight us all into thinking, not really getting like, okay, this is sexism or racism right in front of me. Well, no, that's over. So, so when I hit the tech world, it was like, I couldn't live under that cloud anymore. And I really wanted to help women find ways to regain their power. So I've kind of put these two ideas together and said, you know, I want to be a part of this industry and part of the solution. So because I had social marketing branding skills and an agency, I jumped back in and started working it from that angle. And then I launched um, a course, which was really my first um, lesson in what the cannabis industry really is and what the women in this industry are made of. And it was a course about, you know, how do you get your business going? Okay, it's hard enough to start a business. And I was noticing a lot of women were coming into the industry wanting to start businesses that were passion projects. So they did not have entrepreneurial experience. So they needed that, but they also needed to understand I'm moving into the cannabis industry. Uh, hello, 280E. So hello, oh, you know, yeah. regulation, like all of there's building your business and then there's building a cannabis business. So I went about advertising it and promoting it the way that I had done other things in the past, which was. Okay, ladies, do you want to sit on a Tahitian beach with a hot guy and your Christian Louboutins and, you know, you're rich, you're, you're spelt, you've got a great man because you're so successful, right? That's, that's kind of the tradition of internet marketing. And it failed miserably. And I realized it was because women in this industry don't give a crap about that. I mean, of course, we all do. Like, who is going to turn down a pair of Christian Louboutins? Oh, we all like nice things. Right? Yeah. But it's not what drives us. It's not what motivates us. And I'm telling you, ladies, if you are in this industry for that outcome, you are in the wrong industry. And it, it, I realized women here are here because of passion and a commitment to change. And that is very different proposition than moving into a business because you want to get rich and or famous. And so with that realization, it, I, I, I got it. Okay. We need to build community, right? What these women need is not promise of what it could be. They need help on the ground right now. We have women coming from different states who've never been a part of the industry before, who need to meet each other, who need to learn about who the women leaders in the space are, right? Who do we look up to? Who do we model ourselves? Who do we go to as a mentor? Where are we going to get inside information about what's happening in the industry? How do we put us ahead? So that I really pivoted into actually Jamie Cooper, uh, who's now the president of Sensi Magazine. I love uh, Jamie. She, she is the she's amazing. And without Jamie, we wouldn't have WEIC. She said we've got to start a Facebook group. And as somebody who's been in marketing, it was like, you know, God, just shoot me right now. What a miserable <laughs> proposition that is trying to build community that way, right? She's like, no, we got to do it. We got to do it. Okay, fine, Jamie, let's do it. So we launched that around the course and lo and behold, right place, right time, right partners. Within six months, the course was shut down and the entire focus was at the time women entrepreneurs in cannabis. 
And it has grown. And I've been very, very particular about who is part of the community. Um, I, If you are, you know, I get a lot of women uh, asking to join. Well, I want to learn how to grow at home. Well, that's great, but not here. We are for women who work in the industry or women who are interested in working in the industry. We're not here to talk about how we consume or dosage. We, we all, we're beyond that in this group. We understand. We're here to talk about what resources I need, what help I need. I need to network. I have questions. Where do I get my answers? It really is a support group of women who work in this industry, finding ways to be there for each other. And in the last year, so we're at six years, we've been around in July, on July 15th, our six year anniversary. Last year, I had a very, very difficult uh, realization that I had to come to, which after uh, MJ BizCon or MJ, MJ Biz Daily, I guess the publication, every year they release new statistics on how women and minorities are doing in the industry. And when I started, we were at, what, 32, 33% women in the C-suite? Yeah, it was really hopeful numbers, like really thinking about yeah. how we could influence industry outside of our industry. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The national average was below us. Well, now we have fallen into the teens, and national average is now above us. So for all the work that I was doing and the events that we were hosting and the membership and all the energy I put in over the six years to build something for women, it wasn't making a difference. One-on-one, -on -one, individually, yes, and that's great, but that does not a business make, right? That's a hobby. And I realized that what I'm doing wasn't gonna work unless I had access to money. Because the truth is that unless women entrepreneurs get money to build their businesses, they in turn will hire and promote women and act to create uh, institutions that protect women, we weren't going to advance. That is, that is the key. Get women entrepreneurs funded. I mean, we are phenomenal CEOs. Statistic after statistic after statistic shows that we have a faster, better, bigger return on ROI, less employee turnover. Um, we get our investors' money back faster. I mean, we pay our bills. Like you just, it doesn't matter what statistic we're looking at. Women statistically do better with that funding than men do. And yet, last year, 2022, nationally, women received 1.9% of all funding distributed. You know, okay. So it, it just, it, it blows my mind. And I know that part of it is because finance is a male-dominated industry. And that's one of the big reasons. But it just, it, you know, the soft skills that women have that create successful companies, lowering turnover, creating better products, because I'll tell you, before when we had... 30% plus women as CEOs of companies, the products that were coming out of companies were even better. But uh, three years ago, I actually got a coach to teach me how to speak white bro so that I could have conversations with people about when they would say, I don't understand the ROI. I don't understand the value of what you do. And because women and men have such different approaches to business and language, I think that that's like one of the big bottlenecks 
And what men need to understand is that they have a lot to learn from us on how to create sustainable business. Yes. But I'm going to I'm going to counter what you just said. I'm going to push back on that just a little bit. I love it. Do it. <laughs> okay. So, yes, on the one hand, when it comes to investors making the decision about where their dollars are going to go, mm -hmm. it is it can be very um challenging waters to navigate for a woman, right? Because men right. tend to give money to young men who they see themselves in, right? Yes. It's a human nature thing. I understand. But that's not, that's the end, right? That's the end of the fundraising process is sitting in front of the investor and pitching, right? What we do is we focus on the end. That is where we have a problem because there's a lot of steps that take place before you even sit down with that investor, where if you are not prepared, you're not going to succeed. So my focus is, well, my focus with the Panther Group, because one of the things that I realized last year was, okay, I've got to connect to a money source in order to do this successfully. Panther Group was also looking to help women. That's awesome. So we sat down and we said, how can we do this together to make a difference? And so we merged. And the first project I started working on was we wrote the Roadmap to Funding, which is a free download that is about the strategy and the mindset that you have to have before you go to the investor. And this was a result of the fact that I went to MJ BizCon with the Panther Group last year, and I watched as women pitched the CEO. And, you know, mind you, I am coming from the position where I am a champion for women. My whole focus is on changing the trajectory for them. And I could see in that first step when they were pitching the CEO so bad, mm. they had no confidence. They had, they went on and on and on. They could not answer his question lickety split. This is, women are not putting the right strategy together before they talk to an investor. So when you get that opportunity, you're going to shoot yourself in the foot and they're going to lose interest. You have to understand that the first thing you have, when you start your business, if you're going to ask for equity at some point, that strategy starts the day you open your business, not the day you run out of money. And that is where I see so many women getting it wrong because when they run out of money, that's when suddenly they want somebody to invest in them. And that it's, I mean, it's an eight month process from the point of being ready to ask before you are going to get a dime in the bank, if not longer. Right? right. So this is, that's the wrong approach. That is why we fail because there is nobody telling us how to think about this strategy. So we launched a mentor program a couple of weeks ago. It's an eight week online program. Where we're taking 25 women through the roadmap to funding a week chapter at a time. We're bringing in professionals, investors, CPAs, entrepreneurs who had successful raises to talk to each week about that topic and to talk to the women and answer questions. And then they have a cohort mentor who is walking them through each one of those steps on a personal, intimate level so that they can get the answers that they need. And even there, I feel I had this epiphany today and I, I'm going to probably age myself in this comment, but 
Do you remember the Karate Kid? Yeah, totally. Okay. So Danielson wanted to go out and fight. And he went to Mr. Miyagi and said, "I teach me karate. I want to go kick their butts. And what does Mr. Miyagi have him do? Wax on, wax off, right? All these chores that are actually meant to train his body and build a foundation so that he is an excellent fighter. But Daniel is focused on the fight. That is what we have to do with women. They're focused on the pitch. We need to get them waxing on and waxing off, learning those strategic mindsets and actions that they need to take so that when they are in front of the investor, they'll win. Mm. Does that make sense? It does. It totally makes sense. And then when we're we're looking at investors, how are how are you setting them up for success in choosing an investor? Because as we've seen recently, there have been several companies that have basically folded because they chose the wrong investor and the investor decided to call in the debt and take over the company. We're not there yet in our program. We're still like we're my focus really is the number of women that will actually get to the place where they're making a deal is very, very slim. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I'm not focused on that. I'm focused on getting more women into that position where they can be successful. And it, the goal is to create the roadmap to funding too, where we pick up from, okay, now you're ready mentally, emotionally, physically, you've got a deck, you've got a great pitch, you know what you're doing, you're on fire. Now we can, now let's talk about investors. But this is the problem because we're again, racing to the end instead of focusing on what is the strategy building you up there? If right. you don't have that, I can give you all the advice in the world about how to find investors and how to approach them. But if your pitch isn't solid or you're not asking for the right amount of money or your documents are out of order, you're blowing your chance. Yeah. Right. So it's there's a less to worry about in, you know, what kind of investor and more for you as the entrepreneur to worry about in getting yourself prepared. Now, that is a legitimate question. Absolutely. hundred percent. But that is not, again, that's just not my focus right now. I don't have an answer for you because every single person, every single deal, every single investor is different. True. You're trying to give those, I mean, what I noticed happens <clears throat> in a lot of education around funding in the industry, it's like, here's one tip, here's another tip, here's another tip. But those tips are like data points just thrown at a woman who now has to pick them up and decide what order they go in. And she's so busy trying to answer the questions from these tips that she's not actually building a solid foundation. One step that leads to the next step that leads to the next step. And when you take those steps one at a time, next thing you know, you're on top of the mountain. You can't go from the bottom step to the top step without each one in sequence, right? Mm -hmm. So that's really my message right now is ladies just focus first on the strategy preparing. What's great about the Panther group? And this is something that I've learned really partly going through it myself unsuccessfully numerous times in and out of cannabis and working with entrepreneurs who have been unsuccessful in getting their, their raise as well. When you are an entrepreneur, CEO, and you take money, that becomes 50% of your job. You're not just going to take money once. You're going to have to go back 
and take more money if you're really going to grow your business to a full scale type of business where investors are really interested, right? You have to keep going back, right? That's why there's an A angel round and an A round and a B round and a C round. That becomes your job. Are you ready as an entrepreneur to take 50% of your time to focus on that? Which means now 50% of your time is not focused on the vision and leadership of your company. Right? That's a big question. It's an intimidating thought. For, for a lot of people, that's a very intimidating thought, too. But it's the truth. Yeah. It's the reality, right? Right. So the next thing that I think is very important for investors or entrepreneurs to realize is if you're going for $1 to $10 million, you're going to spend fifty to 100000 finding that money. And that's something we don't talk about very often, and it's a shame. Because when an entrepreneur gets to this point... All right, well, how am I going to reach out to them? Well, I'm going to LinkedIn, send emails around to people, right? Again, that's time taking you off of your business mm -hmm. and making you now become an expert in something you have no expertise in. So what the Panther Group does is we become your outsourced investor relations. We have years and years of experience doing this in cannabis. We have hundreds of investors in our network. We know what they're looking for. We know what they've invested in. We know how to market that business to those investors. So we say it's from deck to deployment. From the minute you walk in, understanding your needs, you know, your business, this is my team, this is what we're asking for. We help shape that pitch for the right investors. We push it out to those investors. And then when you're ready to sit in front of them, we have your back. We make sure that your best interests are being represented. And, you know, you'd mentioned this in your question. I know a lot of entrepreneurs and so do you who've had their companies, especially just gets my goat when it's women that it's happening to as well. Right. Right. Didn't you have an attorney sitting there? Of course you did. Why didn't that attorney make sure you understood what you were getting into? It's not, it's not a done deal, right? You can't always rely on that attorney. So Panther sits in, in that experience with you and makes sure you fully understand the, the contract and the consequences of what it is that you're signing as well as the expectations. And if it's not in your best interest, we're going to advocate for that. Yeah. Because we know, we've seen far ahead, we've done, done tons and tons of deals, both in and out of cannabis. We understand this process. So I had never heard of an outsourced investor relations. If I had, I, I, that would have been my first stop. I wouldn't have wasted so much time trying to do this unsuccessfully. And then when I couldn't do it, that time and money I spent, what's happened to it? It's vaporized. And, you know, to kind of bring it back to this, what I, again, why I push so hard in those beginning stages and want to focus women's attention on that in my own family, $200,000 of inheritance money was spent on a business that went nowhere. And all that money is gone. And what happens to women, that's our power in this world. You know, like it or not, money is power. And when we give that away, what do we have? We have right. no leverage. Right. And I want to see that stop happening with women throwing money away into businesses that are not going to make it. And I don't want to be doomsday. I don't want to be, 
you know, negative Nelly about it. I want to be the voice of the cold water, the reason. Look, ladies, this is your hard-earned money, and it does not grow on trees. Where are you going to spend it? And be smart about it. If you're going to put it into a business, make sure you are really fully funded enough from the get-go to do what you want to do. Because if you are not, you will go under, you will lose, and your money will turn into air. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's something to be said from learning from your mistakes, but when it's attached to large amounts of money, it's a whole other game. Learn from someone else's mistakes. Exactly. Exactly. It's it's really encouraging to hear that there are investors that are that are getting more involved. Do you think that investing in women is a major attraction for them or is it more about having well-prepared candidates in a growing industry? So most investors will tell you that that's what they're looking for. I mean, and there are, like I said, there are those psychological things that there's nothing we can do about. If they see a young man sitting across from them, they feel that sense of familiarity because it reminds them of him. That's really hard to do anything about. But, you know, if you can show up strong as a woman, know your pitch inside and out unshakable. You come across full of confidence, absolutely understanding the numbers with a strong team, that is going to put you in a really, really good position. Unfortunately, it really does help to have a man on your team. It does help to have a man representing you on your side. You know, it's just the way it is. Like we can fight it and bitch about it or we can say, all right, let's figure out how to to solve this problem until, you know, the world catches up with us, essentially. Right, right. Right? So that is a really good thing to do to have a man on your team. But, you know, if you go in there with a mind blowing pitch and you are just oozing confidence and clarity and certainty, you know, it's going to be hard to say no. I mean, you know, look, you're trying to get somebody to give you a lot of money and entrust you with how you're going to distribute it. You know, put yourself in their shoes for a minute and think about what it would take for you to invest your money. What would it take for you to mortgage your house, take that money and put it into somebody's business and trust them to give you a return? Like, what do you need to hear to to do that? Put yourself in their shoes. What I am seeing though is in Panther Group is, you know, trying to lead the way on this is doing things to give more women more resources and opportunities to get prepared. We are looking at putting together a female focused fund. We've had a lot of women investors who say we'd like to participate in something like that. If you are interested in that, please reach out to me. I'd love to put you in touch with our CEO and we can talk about that. And there are a lot of companies that we talk to that don't really know how to help, but they want to help women. So we had Shannon Veto, who's the CEO of Evergreen Market who donated a large amount of money to make sure that 10 women could take the mentor course. That's awesome. So we are looking for companies to basically sponsor 25 seats for every mentor program so that we can actually give these seats to qualified women. That's the goal. And we're finding a lot more companies are interested in doing that. Now to the question of, you know, is it kind of becoming trendy to invest in women? There's a big billboard that just went up in LA with a company bragging about how many women they've invested in. So yes, I would say that 
things are starting to change on the one hand, yet 2021, 2.3% of funding went to women, 2022, 1.9%. That's so frustrating. So, you know, over a hundred billion dollars, almost $200 billion, and we got one billion is basically what that comes out to. When we're looking at investing, one of the things that's been going on for years, people get really excited about investing in Canvas. Mm-hmm. They they start thinking about the green rush, which <laughs> I got in trouble in a meeting one day when I was when I was a co-chair of the legalization task force, and I was like, the green rush is over. Unless you were like hauling packs back in the day when it was going for over 3000 a pound, there's no green rush. It's just business. It's just business. But investors were oftentimes wanting to get in on it, expecting a quick return, and then really getting upset when they didn't do their homework and realized it was a long game. How do you think that's changed? Well, I don't know that there ever was a green rush. I mean, I know (laughs) you people who made a lot of money because they weren't really doing it according to the rules. Mm. Um, But yeah, I don't know anybody that's gotten rich off cannabis. Uh, So I think the whole concept of green rush was um, hope, you know, kind of fingers crossed, hope and a prayer that that would be the case. But it was not. I still hear people slinging that. uh, And I and it always cracks me up because I'm like, either you're totally uneducated or I need to stay the heck away from you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's true. I think there's a lot of people that come in who've made it successful in other industries who think they know and don't realize that if you have not been in cannabis for at least three years, you still don't know anything. Mm -mm. Like, and I can only say that after having been in it for almost a decade and still I know next to nothing. But I know a lot because of the women that I have surrounded myself with, thousands and thousands of them from all over the country. So I get, I'm in a very unique position to hear what's going on. And I'm telling you, there are so few entrepreneurs who are like, yeah, wow, that's cool what you've built. You're rich. Like, no. And the blood, sweat and tears that goes into it, the agony, the stress. I mean, in any industry, it's it's difficult. But when you cannot write off a single expense and your taxes are 10 times higher than everybody else in your community, right? it's, I don't know how anybody could be that successful. So I don't know. I think we, we've kind of shot ourselves in the foot with this whole concept of green rush because, you know, and then we've got all these new states coming on too, and, and they come on even fresher than California, because a lot of them didn't have an established medical industry beforehand. So they're coming in just straight black market into a new framework of legalization. And, you know, a lot of really um, strange ideas about how to run their programs and what they're going to get out of it. So and it's a long answer to that question. But Well, it's that's the thing that always really frustrates me like especially like being out in New York and and talking with people and you know one of the things that I noticed was I met a lot of lovely people and then I met people that were kind of like what are you doing out here are you coming out here for work because this is this is New York this is our space and I was like no no I'm coming out to say hi see what you're doing talk to you about it and 
in some ways, you know, being somebody who works in policy, like make sure you're not making the same mistakes we did. Look at us. Don't do what we did. Look at the other states. Don't do what they did. Why are we constantly reinventing the wheel? You've got great case studies out there to create good policy. Now create it. Well, again, I think it's human nature. I mean, we could say that about history in general. Truth. We could say that about lessons we've learned from other countries. But, you know, America likes to uh, to think for themselves, right? We can do it better. We can figure this out. I mean, I know that when we started um, after Prop 64 here in California, there was um, a consulting group growing around to different jurisdictions. And convincing them of exactly how this needed to play out. And it was horrific. They had packed in tons of consulting fees, jacked up prices, and the guidance they were giving was horrible for growers, horrible for licensees. And yet somehow, because they were uneducated, uh, jurisdictions, you know, city councils stuff kept hiring them. And I remember we had to do a massive awareness campaign to stop, get people to stop hiring them and giving this horrible advice. So when you're in an area where you're pretty isolated from the cannabis industry and someone comes along and says, well, I'm the expert. Well, that's kind of, I mean, that's one of the things that always blew my mind with the experts that had been in the space for all of two minutes and then putting out a consultant shingle. I mean, that's... Mm -hmm. I, I I remember even getting into some very heated conversations with some of said consultants, and I was like, honey, I've been doing this for over a decade. What you're saying? Fairy tales. What Get mm-hmm. some education so that you actually earn your money with this. Seriously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think there are some states that will probably do well that will learn their lesson and have some sensible people in, you know, their cannabis regulatory departments or boards, whatever, however, that each, each state is dealing with it. But yeah, I mean, you know, look, you've been around a long time and so have I, and at this point, it's kind of like, you know, where else are we going to go? What else are we going to do? You know, I mean, once you've been in cannabis, the, the kind of the thrill and the rush and the anxiety and the heightened sense of everything is on the one hand a little uh, addictive um and you know on the other hand when you have wins in this industry it's pretty rewarding because what you are doing is changing things for people right the work that you do the work that i do we are about big scale change for women for minorities for medical patients for access for getting people out of jail for getting interstate commerce you know there's a lot of things that we are working on that are huge and important. And so to give that up at this point, where else would we find work that was satisfying? It's true. And and going back to what you were saying before about, you know, being in the industry for almost a decade and still learning, I think that that's part of the beauty of where we are too, is that, you know, we're constantly learning. We're constantly we're, we're, we're learning new things. Some things, you know, are being proven wrong. And for me, like, I just lean in. It's fascinating. I'm like, okay, so that wasn't true. What's true? Let's look at this. Let's like take this apart. And that's, I mean, it's an exciting thing to be in this strange. And I always like, I always say, cause like my, my, my background was org psych. It's like the storming, norming and reforming of like an industry is a really exciting place to be. But man, I wish we were a little bit further along. 
I mean, I know I'm not alone in that. That's preaching to the choir. Yep. Yeah. On all fronts, you know, on on the maturity of the industry, excuse me, of the the return on investment. You know, I mean, how much money has been blown to nothing? I was on the phone with a friend of mine in Humboldt and she said, oh, yeah, I know a company that borrowed thirty four million dollars that just went under Oh, the pain. So what? Three, four billion maybe is just turned into air in California investments in cannabis. Yeah, I was in a lot. It affects not only the entrepreneurs, but there's a lot of people that are out of work. The layoffs have been enormous. Yes. I just read the other day that one person had put up a job and they got 3,000 applicants. Oh, my God. Yeah. People are really scrambling to they want to stay in it. And also, because even though we are in an era of legalization, if you've spent significant time in the industry and you decide to go out into the non-cannabis world, there it's still super challenging to look for work because people make assumptions. Even and and the thing that kills me about that is I have so many colleagues that understand the importance of the industry and are behind it and aren't in it just for the money. Of course, you know, you a person's got to eat and pay their bills, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily even consume. And they're not those ones that are coming in saying, I don't consume, but I'm in to make money. They're like, I don't consume, but I understand the importance because it's right for other people and I want to do this work. And then they decide to leave and it's like, I've had, you know, people, I'm applying for admin assistant jobs, even like, just like do whatever I need to do to get work. But nobody wants to look at my resume because I have to change everything on my resume that says cannabis to like plant medicine or wellness. And like, it's almost like code switching on your resume to actually get through the door. That's so interesting. I had no idea that was happening. Yeah. Um, You know, what's, what's too bad about that, though, is... As an employer, you should realize that if you're going to hire somebody that worked in the cannabis industry, I mean, trimmer to bud tender to executive, you're getting someone with a very unique skill set and ability to work in a regulated industry, which is very difficult to do. I mean, I to me, they would be more compelling candidates because of their cannabis experience. Exactly. You know, there's definitely more critical thought, there's more drive, but it's that outstated, outstated, outdated view, which, you know, unfortunately, some of our policymakers still have too, which is why we have these incredible syntax policies that we're dealing with, that they feel that people who use cannabis are of a certain ilk. They're, they're unmotivated. They, you know, they don't, I always would tell people like when I worked in a dispensary, um, sp- spend an afternoon in my waiting room and see who walks through. It's people of all walks of life you'd never even expect. And as was on LinkedIn the other week, somebody was saying, talking about consumption lounges and how we needed to start gearing it more towards the non, we have to have some things for people who aren't stoners. And I was like, yeah, it's one of the untapped markets. There's much more people who do not partake in stoner culture. Not that there's anything wrong with it, just different strokes for different folks. And somebody else was like, well, you know, stoners are the ones who like purchase the most. I'm like, I'd love to see your data on that. I'd really, really love to see that. And it's a call to action for people who, you know, want to see better policy. They want to see the, the companies that they, are, you know, support, survive, 
they want to see better products, they want to see better pricing, and they want to see, you know, more safe access, we have to get politically active. And we need to talk to the people who depend on our votes for their jobs, say, you know, I am a highly functioning member of society who participates, who pays taxes, and most importantly, I vote and I use cannabis. So look at me. I am not, you're not making policy that serves who I am and you think you are because you don't realize what is par- a big part of my life. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, the irony of all of that is the people that I have met in the cannabis industry, although we do have a reputation for being unprofessional and on the flaky side, there are also an incredible amount of people who are freaking workaholics. Absolutely. I've worked in tech, I've worked in entertainment, and I've met more workaholics, more highly productive people in this industry who are cannabis users than in any other industry. And we have the ability to get stuff done. We have the ability to work in a very complicated regulatory environment. And also, you know, cannabis business owners have a choice. Do I pay attention to the rules and follow the hardest set of rules any industry in this country, harder than pharma and harder than alcohol because we don't have banking and we have 280E. So you take a business owner that has to dedicate more blood, sweat and tears than traditional. We choose to follow the rules and be good citizens when, you know, our option is sitting there the easy way out right there, right there. It's right there. And yet we choose to stay honest and true. Like we are becoming better citizens in our communities. And yet we're not being seen for who we are and what we bring to the table in our community and to our state, which is far outweighs a lot of other industries. Right. And try being a marketing professional in this industry. And the compliance stuff, like people do not get it. And every time somebody who's in marketing comes into cannabis, I'm like, we need your skills, but we're about to just throw you a bunch of stuff that you are like, I don't know how you're going to deal with compliance. I don't know how you're going to deal with social media. If you figure it out, let me know. (laughs) Well, yeah. And then you get all these clients that are like, I don't want to spend that much money on marketing. I sell $20 pre-rolls all day long. Why do I have to have a brand? And it shows in all of these dispensaries that look like back alley, like, you know, drug dens. Yeah. As opposed to fully legal uh, dispensaries where you can learn about what cannabis is and choose from a variety. You know, that's not what is being portrayed because why bother? I mean, I, when I was running my marketing agency, I had so many, both dispensary and brands owners say, what do I need it for? I sell, I sell all day long. Not for long, not with competition. It doesn't sell itself. And you have, if you're, your base that you're selling to, that's already there. It's not infinite. It's when we look at how it's called the normies. Going out to the normies, like you're normal. There are people out there that do not subscribe to stoner culture that are using it as part of their lives as wellness or will. If you can approach it in a way where it doesn't seem illicit, it's normalized, and you're not running something that looks like a backdoor den of inequity. (laughs) 
you know, that's, that's, yeah. it's as simple yeah. as that. But in some of the newer states, I think it's even harder for people to understand that because they're just not paying attention to anything outside their own back door. So what are some things that you're really excited about? I'm really excited about the mentor program and the roadmap to funding. I mean, you know, if we can get women educated and I can move the needle through this, that is exciting to me. Um, I'm excited really about, I mean, I've, I've seen a lot of things come across uh, that Congress is going to work on safe banking. And, you know, for years, there's been all this promise of it moving. But this FDA rescheduling, the buzz on the street is a little different this time. And so I'm feeling optimistic about this. And that will, from where I'm sitting, uh, working with funding, that could potentially open the floodgates in a way we have not seen and finally bring some real money back in. Because if we can put our money in a bank and travel over state lines, and I, and I think the third pillar to that, which is really important, which I do hope does not get um, uh, looked over in, in going this route is record expungement, because mm -hmm. if we get too far in the process from that, it will be forgotten. And I think that it's very important to the health of the industry that it not be left behind. Absolutely. But, you know, interstate commerce and banking will absolutely i mean we'll be in a renaissance sarah you and i will have never seen anything like what will come and it will make all of the time that we've been here absolutely worth it right it's the new we'll get to ride the crest of the bigger wave so i'm really excited about that and i hope that goes through i i, I am too i'm i'm really excited about that i had um both the chairs of the Congressional Cannabis Caucus on the show this past year. And one of the things I mentioned to them, like, we're all excited about the idea of legalization and banking and interstate commerce. But what I want to ask you is, where does federal taxation come in? Because we're already in some states like ours, are, we're, we're imploding because the taxation is more than we can bear. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to go back to the beginning of our conversation and say, you know who's making out on the gold rush? The states. Yeah. Well, but you know, yes and no, because it's one of the things that we were talking about before is that, you know, they the state of California was so disappointed after the first year about how little taxes they got. And they're like, oh, now, you know, the illicit market is growing. And it's like, well, well yeah, because, yeah, when I've got, I mean, and that was when I was still, you know, heading up education and occasionally behind the bar at the dispensaries. And I was there that first day of legalization. And I can't tell you how many, especially older people, there were tears on the other side of the bar because all of a sudden they couldn't afford what they needed. So yeah, they're going to go back to their guy. And the states need to understand that, yes, taxation, of course, is essential. We're not saying that it's not, but be reasonable about it. And in the end, you get more because the sales come. And that's what's going to lower the volume of the illicit market. Not going in and spending money on law enforcement, but actually changing your infrastructure around cannabis taxation. Yeah, they point. would be making money hand over fist if they did that. Well, you have so many more businesses, too. Yeah. More taxes to pay in, more interesting products, more people engaging. 
it's it's it but the it kind of goes back to you know talking about it being a syntax and looking at the people who are involved through an outdated lens it's like it's a business just like any other and so put your business hat on like stop like i i I don't know if i told you this but when i was in the the sf cannabis oversight committee before the pandemic um controller's office came in and did a report about the price per gram and how it had gone up due to competition and i was like i don't know where you're getting this and you're supposed to know about economics that's never how it works let me let me break it down for you why the price has gone up and it was like you know and the fact that i got quoted on that was ridiculous because that's common sense and so we need to have more common sense when we're looking at policy in cannabis and i yes you know i'm just really uh but we could talk about this (laughs) i know i'm like wow we've been talking for an hour and yet i feel like we've just started to scratch i know we might have to do a part two (laughs) i think so i think so but for people who want to to look get a hold of you or follow you also to get access to more information about the mentorship program and the roadmap to funding how would they do that so you can reach me at uh kira reed um, on linkedin you can reach me on facebook at kira reed um you can reach me at the panther group kira k-y-r-a at the panthergroup.co you can find out more about us at womenemployedincannabis.com or thepanthergroup.co. Awesome. Thank you for asking. Absolutely. Well, I, people need to know how to get a hold of you and to learn about all the awesome things you're doing because it is so very needed. And I'm just so glad that we got a chance to have this conversation. I'm really looking forward to talking to you, especially after your first cohort is done. We should really yes. get together. and to. Yeah, that'd be awesome. In fact, let's do it with the winner. Oh, let's do it. Okay. And then I just want to say also, um, if you're interested in downloading the roadmap to funding, it is free. And you go to thepanthergroup.co forward slash roadmap to funding and you can download it there. Awesome. Kira, I love that idea. Let's do that with, when we have our mentee winner. Let's do it. I'm, I'm just so excited about what you guys are doing and to see just grateful that you're you're helping women come out you know strong and informed and going to be creating great businesses with also generational wealth because that's that's what it's all about that's right that's right well thank thank you for giving me um, a platform to talk about what we're doing i really appreciate it oh absolutely thank you kira it's been a total pleasure and everyone remember if you like listening please Give us a review, share it with a friend, let us know what your favorite episodes are. And if you'd like to stay in touch over social media, we are Planted with Sarah Pion on Facebook and Planted with Sarah on Instagram and Twitter. You can also go to our website, www.plantedwithsarah.com, or listen to us on our parent network, Radio Misfits Network, where there are other great podcasts like one of my favorites, the Winemakers Podcast. So check it out. You can listen to Planted wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, whether that's Pandora, Spotify, Amazon, Google, Apple, Stitcher, tune in. We are there. So join us. And until next time, stay curious, stay safe. And remember, it's a wild world out there. Be good to one another. Until next time, take care.